Good morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Cameron. I am the youth pastor here as well as one of the pastoral interns. And one of the best things ever happened to me today. I discovered that Zach Pummel and I are wearing identical socks. So, all right, so we're continuing this morning through the Gospel of John, and we'll be spending our time in John chapter 10, verses 22 through 42. You can turn there in your Bibles or find it printed for you in your worship guide. I ask that if you're able, that you stand for the reading of God's Word. Hear now the Word of the Lord. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. At the start of our passage, Jesus is in Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Dedication. This feast isn't actually something from the Old Testament, but is a holiday commemorating something that happened during the 400 years between the Old and New Testaments. This was a period of about 400 years between the completion of the writing of the Old Testament and the events of the New Testament, where God did not give his people any more revelation. But a lot did happen that will help us understand what John is trying to tell us in our passage this morning. Israel had been invaded and conquered by a Greek king named Antiochus Epiphanes. After he took over, Antiochus Epiphanes banned Judaism, declared himself God, and sacrificed pigs to Zeus inside of the temple in Jerusalem. This was a great blasphemy, and the Jews revolted and defeated Antiochus Epiphanes. The Feast of Dedication is a celebration of the rededication of the temple after their victory. And this is actually still celebrated in Judaism today and is now called Hanukkah. So that's our backdrop. Jesus was in Jerusalem for this celebration, and the author John is using this feast to set the background for the confrontation between Jesus and the people who surround him. 
So in verse 24, the people surround Jesus to demand whether he reveal whether or not he is the Christ. The book of John has been driving towards this point where the people who have heard Jesus' gospel proclamation must decide whether they will believe his message. Central to the question of belief in Jesus' message is his identity. Is he the Christ? The the Christ is the Messiah promised in the Old Testament, the heir of David who would deliver Israel. But John shows that both Jesus and the Jews realized that there was something more than being a deliverer attached to the title Christ. There's something divine about being the Christ, and the Jews need to know if Jesus is claiming to be divine. Tell us plainly, are you the Christ? The phrase used in verse 24, how long will you keep us in suspense, literally means in the Greek, how long will you take up our souls? The question of whether Jesus is the Christ is driving the Jews nuts because the credibility of Jesus' ministry hangs on that very question. And the importance of that question is as true for us today as it was for the Jews in Jesus' time. The truth of our faith, the object of our worship, comes down to whether Jesus is the Christ. We are setting out this morning to see how this passage answers that question and the implications of that answer. So Jesus has already answered the Jews' questions as he states in verse 25. The works that Jesus has done, such as healing the man born blind in John chapter 9, reveal that he has been acting with the authority of the Father. He has shown over and over again that he is the Christ, but the people have not believed. So why do the people not believe? The miraculous works that Jesus has been doing should be convincing on their own merit, but there is a reason that so many people see and still do not believe. Verses 26 and 27 give us the answer. Only the sheep of Jesus' flock believe. Those who are not of his flock will not believe, no matter what miracles they witness. The order that Jesus gives here is important. People become part of Jesus' flock, and then they believe, not the other way around. The people who antagonized, opposed, and disbelieved Jesus did not believe he was the Christ and would not believe that he was the Christ, no matter what they witnessed, because they were not part of his flock. Evidence, arguments are useful to help people see who Jesus is, but they are not enough to convince someone to believe in Christ. It takes the divine work of the Holy Spirit for people to truly see who Jesus that Jesus is who he says he is. So notice the difference between those who are not part of Jesus' flock and those who are. While those who are not part of Jesus' flock do not believe, those who are part of his flock hear his voice and follow Jesus. Jesus is the good shepherd of his flock, the church. And Jesus' flock is characterized by following him. To believe Jesus, to hear his voice, is to be obedient to him. To follow Jesus is to be his disciple. You cannot be considered part of Christ's flock without being his disciple. Another way of putting it is like this. Faith is following You believe if you are a disciple of Jesus, if you are a follower of Jesus. It's important to note that Jesus does not have one or two or a multitude of small flocks, but one flock. Jesus' sheep follow, not by making their own way, but by following him and his voice as one. 
When shepherds lead their sheep, the animals don't straggle in from all sorts of different directions, but come as one unit. Discipleship, being part of Jesus' flock, is not done as single, isolated sheep, but as part of a whole flock. Jesus is giving us a picture here of one flock obeying him together. Christian discipleship must and should be done in the context and setting of the community of the church. In your life, with your family, you should prioritize being part of the community of the church, being part of the life of the church. That is how discipleship is and should be done. We are, we are fooling ourselves if we think for even a second that we can follow Jesus without being part of his whole flock. So the primary job of a shepherd is to guide and protect his sheep. Jesus very strongly states that he and the Father together, as one, protect Christ's flock. Look with me at verses 28 and 29. Jesus, Jesus gives eternal life to his sheep, life that cannot be taken from them. His flock has been placed into his hand, and nothing can remove them. Why can nothing remove us from his hand? Because we are in the Father's hand. Verses 28 and 29 are intentional parallel. The sheep are safe because they are in Jesus' hand, and they are safe because they are in the Father's hand. How can they be in both? Because Jesus and the Father are one. So the way that Jesus is going about answering the Jews' question is actually pretty telling. Are you the Christ? Well, let me tell you about how I care for my sheep. I am the Christ because I give my sheep life. And they are safe in my hand because they are safe in the Father's hand. And this is because the Father and I are one. Being the Christ is tied up in the mission of God, which is to protect and give life to the sheep. Jesus is the Christ because he gives us, his flock, his church, life. The statement in verse 30, that I and the Father are one, is a very important statement. Jesus is not claiming here that he and the Father are the same person. Yes, Jesus is fully divine, and he is a member of the triune God. But what Jesus is affirming here is that he and the Father are one in mission. Jesus can successfully call and protect his sheep because he and the Father are united in the mission of bringing hope to the lost and life to the dying. The, the response of the people in verse 31 is sadly predictable. They had surrounded Jesus back in verse 24, and that was probably to make it easier to stone him. They had anticipated wanting to kill Jesus. And they say that they are going to stone him, not for the good works that validate his claims, but for him being a man declaring himself to be God. This is a sad twist. On the Feast of Dedication, a holiday celebrating when God's temple was recaptured from a mad king who declared himself to be God, the Jewish people are going to stone the one who truly is God. As one commentator put it, they are trying to stay faithful to God, honoring the presence of God in the temple, but instead they are going to destroy the very life and presence of God by killing Jesus. They have it completely backwards. Antiochus Epiphanes is the pagan man who declared himself to be God, but Jesus is the God who became man to save his people. As John said in chapter 1, verse 11, Jesus came to his own, 
but they did not receive him. Those who were not part of Jesus' flock would not believe him. So the people understood that to claim to be the Christ was to claim to be God. Jesus' statement that he and the Father are one did nothing to calm the zealous people down. So here is Jesus, surrounded by people who have rocks in their hand and are prepared to kill him, and he responds, not with fear or anger, but with wit and grace. So Jesus asks them in verse 34, whether it is written in their law, I said, you are God's. Jesus is referencing Psalm 82, which was our Old Testament reading this morning. There is a lot of debate about what Psalm 82, 6 means when it says, I said, you are God's, sons of the Most High, all of you. This is probably a reference to God's people being created to be co-heirs with Christ and co-stewards to rule his creation. In Jesus' time, the Jewish people would have understood that to be a reference to the nation of Israel. They would have read Psalm 82 as saying that the people of God were the ones called gods. And the Jews were all quite okay with that. Jesus is saying, hey, look, the scriptures cannot be broken. The Bible is true. So if you guys are okay with calling yourself gods, then why do you have a problem with me calling myself the one whom God actually sent, the one he commissioned? Why do you have a problem when I call myself the son of God? This is where Jesus shows off his wit and wisdom. The people think they understand the scriptures, but they really don't. Since they will affirm what scriptures teach, as long as it suits them, but will reject the very God who gave it to them in the first place, Jesus is able to show them their inconsistency and hypocrisy. They can't condemn Jesus for calling himself the Son of God when they are okay referring to themselves as gods. How often do we fall into the same sort of trap? Choosing the parts of the Bible we like in order to make ourselves feel good or special, but don't actually respond to the scriptures by following Jesus as we should. It is so easy to get caught up in doctrine to make make ourselves feel better without actually following Jesus in obedience. An example from my life is that I find it very easy to affirm that Sundays are a day of rest, which means I should probably sleep and not go to church. And so... In that case, what I'd be doing is affirming a good doctrine, but refusing to follow Jesus in obedience to it. So in this moment, surrounded by the people, Jesus also responds with grace and compassion. Jesus was consecrated, commissioned by the Father, and sent into the world, and that is why he can claim to be the Son of God. Why don't the people believe him? Because they are not of Christ's flock. But look at with me at verses 37 and 38. Jesus has already stated that these people are not of his flock or they would have believed. Yet here he is offering the gospel to them. You can just hear him pleading. You don't believe me? Just believe the works that I do so that you may believe that I and the Father are one. As one commentator put it, here is life offering itself, offering life to those who would kill him. Jesus is not only showing the people their inconsistency and hypocrisy or just trying to avoid being killed, but is giving them an opportunity to repent and believe. So Jesus' response to the Jews surrounding him gives us two very important implications about the gospel. So the first is about the content of the gospel message. 
The Father is in Christ, and Christ is in the Father. There is a unity in mission between the Father and Jesus, because Jesus is God. When Jesus said that I and the Father are one, the Jewish people would have understood that as a call to worship Jesus. They knew the Old Testament law. The proper response to God is to worship Him. For Jesus to claim to be God, as He is doing here, is to claim that He is to be worshipped. So we see here something central to the Christian message. And that is that we should and must worship Jesus. To be a follower of the Good Shepherd is to be a worshiper of Christ. Being a Christian, being part of the church, is, a, is certainly more than what we do on Sunday mornings, but it is not less than what we do here. The purpose of church is not simply to learn about the Bible or to have fellowship or community with each other. Those are all good and very necessary things, but they aren't why we gather. The main reason we gather together every Sunday is to worship our God. Central to Christian identity is worship of God, Worship of Jesus in doing that together as one flock is one of the most critical ways for us to be disciples and followers of Jesus. When we gather together as a church, we are proclaiming the gospel by worshiping Jesus as God. If we are not known as a worshiping people, we have sadly missed an essential doctrine, an essential element of the gospel. So, The second implication of Jesus' response tells us that the gospel is to be universally proclaimed. Jesus did not say in verse 38, you know what, guys? You aren't part of my flock, so I'm not going to plead with you to hear and believe. No, what he did was plead with them to believe him so that they would believe in the Father, even though they were not part of his flock. The gospel message is for all people. As disciples of Jesus... We need to take our cues from him and follow his lead. So as Christ's church, it is our obligation and privilege to preach the gospel to all people, no matter what our doctrine of predestination is. We must follow the lead of our shepherd in sharing the gospel with all people. The gospel does not become less important after we join Christ's church. We continually need to hear it proclaimed in our lives so that we do not forget it so that we grow in our faith. When John recorded Jesus' description of the nature of his flock in verses 27 and 28, he is reminding his readers, the church, about the gospel story. The sheep hear Christ's voice and follow him, and Christ knows his flock. We do not only hear the voice of Jesus in our call to salvation, but by the Holy Spirit through the Word of God. The gospel needs to be universally proclaimed not just to those who are outside of the church, but also to those of us already inside the flock. We need to be reminded of what the voice of our shepherd sounds like. So John shows us something interesting here in verses 39 through 42. After Jesus answers the people, they again try to arrest him, but he escapes. Jesus journeys away from Jerusalem to the wilderness of John the Baptist's ministry, and there many people believe in him. John, the author, is setting up a contrast here. Jesus proclaims the gospel in Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, but is rejected, and the people try to kill him. He is forced to escape, and it appears that the gospel is falling upon deaf ears. The leaders in Jerusalem may have even seen this as a victory of sorts. Ha! Look, he had to leave. We've won. He's gone. 
But what John is showing is that while it may seem like the gospel failed to take root, that Jesus had to flee, what actually happened was that true life was being given to those who believed. What might have seemed like a failure on the surface was actually a victory because the gospel was going forth and people were believing. Preaching the gospel and being a Christian will often be met by ridicule, rejection, and antagonism. We should expect nothing less in our lives because that's what happened in the life of Christ. But even when the gospel seems to be rejected, there is hope because God is faithful. The people who believed in the wilderness are an example to spur us on, knowing that our gospel proclamation is not in vain, but that those whom God called, He will save. Our motivation for sharing the good news of Jesus is that it is through us that the gospel will go out, and that is how God will save those who are perishing. So what does all this mean for us today? Well, this passage offers a great comfort to Christians. Look at verses 28 and 29. Jesus being the Christ means that he is our shepherd and that he secures us. There is so much assurance of our security in God here. We are in the hand of Christ. He has given us life and nothing can threaten that. The good shepherd protects his sheep and secures them and our salvation is assured. If you believe in Jesus, if you follow him, nothing can threaten your salvation. There's an interesting element in verse 29 related to this. Usually this verse is translated as, My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. Certainly, God is the greatest thing and being. And because the Father and the Son are one in mission, we are secure. We are safe in God's hands because of his greatness. However, this verse should probably be translated as, what my Father has given to me is the greatest of all. If you're actually following along in the ESV, you'll actually see that as a footnote here. Here is why that's important. The flock, the church, is the greatest gift that Christ could have possibly received from the Father. We often get so caught up saying that we are worthless sinners who cannot save ourselves, unable to do good before God, that we miss what happens when we are part of Jesus' flock. The church is the greatest gift. This means that the church and its members have worth and value greater than anything else that Christ could have received. This affirms Deuteronomy 32.9 when it says that the Lord's inheritance, his portion, is his people. This is why Jesus so vigilantly guards his flock, why those whom he has given eternal life will never perish. Because Jesus loves his people. It's no coincidence that Jesus used Psalm 82 as the passage to expose the hypocrisy and inconsistency of the people. Psalm 82 is a powerful passage that speaks about God ruling the earth and the relationship between God and his people in doing that. Jesus is not only pointing out that the Jews don't understand Psalm 82, but is indicating what kind of life he is giving to his people. Jesus gives his sheep life, as John 28, uh, 10.28 says. The word eternal there means more than just forever. It has the idea of a kingdom life. The life that Jesus gives his sheep is restorative. The life that he gives his church is undoing the brokenness caused by sin in the fall. The Jews here think they are gods. 
but the ones who are really restored to the role as Christ's co-rulers, as Psalm 82 mentions, are the ones to whom Jesus has given life, his flock. And Psalm 82 ends by declaring that God will inherit the nations. This promised inheritance finds its fulfillment in the Father giving the church to Christ. This is why we can talk about the church as the greatest gift that the Father gave to the Son. So Jesus says in verse 30 that the Father is in Him and that He is in the Father. They are united. We'll later see in John chapter 14 and John chapter 17 that through the Holy Spirit we are also united to Christ. This means that in Christ we have value and worth. That part of our redemption is that we are no longer worthless, but that we are worthy members of God's family. Some of you may be struggling with this. Some of you may be doubting that God could actually love you. Or you may be thinking that you need to continually improve your behavior in order to earn God's love or approval. You may find yourself doubting that God's love could be true after all the things that have happened in your life. Let me say along with Paul that I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things that have happened to you in your past, or things that are happening to you now, or things that will happen to you in the future, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor any other created thing will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can snatch you out of the hand of Christ because God loves you. There are also probably some people here this morning who are questioning whether they are actually part of God's flock. You find yourself doubting, not that God loves His church, but that this gospel message of salvation is for you. Some of you may be thinking that the Christian faith was never really your own in the first place, but that faith had you born into a Christian home, and now you aren't sure if you believe. Some of you may be looking at your lives in despair, thinking that no one who is part of God's flock would act that way. You may be questioning whether or not you have faith at all, and doubt about your faith can be agonizing. So consider why you would have the opportunity to hear God's word among God's people. If you are hearing the message of the gospel proclaimed, if your hearts are being stirred, be encouraged. This is the hope of the gospel being offered here, and the answer to the Jews' question that they asked Jesus at the beginning of the passage. Jesus, God the Son, became man so that he could rescue his flock. Hanukkah, the feast of dedication, is a celebration about honoring the presence of God in the temple. But Jesus came to give us the full and abundant presence of God. He is the Christ worthy of worship because He and the Father secure the sheep by giving them life. That message is for everyone. So if you are hearing it and are doubting, know that Jesus is calling for you to believe. It is for you that the gospel continues to be proclaimed in and to the church. You know, it, it would be a little bit pretentious for me to think that if someone is really doubting their faith, that all they need to do is listen to me preach and their problem would be solved. But it has been my experience that we are a forgetful people who often know the truth but have forgotten it, who know we are, who we are in Christ but need reminders. Jesus is the good shepherd, and he will go all out to find his lost sheep. If you find yourself doubting whether the gospel promises are for you, whether Jesus does love you, 
or whether you actually believe, know that nothing can separate you from the love of God and nothing can snatch you out of the hand of Christ. Let's pray together now. God, you are good. Thank you for the grace and mercy you have shown us in securing your flock. Thank you for the goodness that is shown there. Thank you, Father, for sending us your Son to call and to know his people, to call and to know his church. We know that you are great and just and that you will be faithful to inherit your people, that we will be secure because of who you are. Thank you for the comfort of your Spirit who assures that we will be secure and that we won't be snatched from your hand. Father, through your Spirit, please comfort those who are doubting, those who are wondering if they have faith. Give them a peace that surpasses understanding. Give them a knowledge of the security that they have in you. Help them know and help us know and remember that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Lord, through your Spirit, please teach us to live as a flock, as a church that follows you, that is faithful to you in obedience. And Lord, for those who are not part of your church, please, through your Spirit, bring people to a knowledge of you. Move them to repentance. Give those here who love those who are not part of your church courage and wisdom to speak into their lives, that through them you might bring these people to faith. God, we love you. And we thank you for your son, Jesus, who you sent. In his name I pray. Amen.